DevOps is no longer just for the unicorns. If you're a company that releases software, which, let's face it, is most companies these days, DevOps is probably on your agenda or somewhere on your roadmap. But there's a lot that goes into that. For instance, how do you weigh quality versus speed? How do you keep developers both productive and happy? What security practices should you follow? And perhaps the biggest question, how do you deal with the inevitable culture challenges? Even if DevOps is on your roadmap, it can be quite the journey to implement it effectively, and you might need some navigation to help you get there. And if those puns haven't gotten you to stop the podcast, I'm Ryan Black, Assistant Site Editor of Search Software Quality. I like what you did there. I know you're lying, but I appreciate the compliment anyway. And I'm David Carty, Site Editor of Search Software Quality. This is the Test and Release Podcast, where we speak with experts about software development and testing topics. In this episode, we spoke with Gene Kim, He's the founder of IT Revolution, an IT publishing and research company which hosts the yearly DevOps Enterprise Summit. Kim is an author and researcher, and he has background in both programming and ops. That came in handy when writing his latest book, The Unicorn Project, which follows the struggles of a senior lead developer in a bureaucratic organization. Organizations must fundamentally change to embrace a DevOps culture, and that means blameless postmortems, i.e. not shooting the messenger, and encouraging creativity. Still, even in creatively open cultures, developers can experience burnout. As much work as developers have on their plates, they need to know when to draw the line. Kim argues that sometimes they need to be fussy and communicate that they can't give their best efforts to where their expertise lies when they have to learn how to do this whole other complicated task. We also discussed his thoughts on consolidation in the DevOps tools space and how he thinks the DevOps movement will continue to evolve. And there are no more puns for the rest of the podcast. DevOps is a mindset, but it's one that requires an actual course correction in terms of organizational structure and collaboration. So uh, for the forward-thinking person, maybe a person leaving the DevOps Enterprise Summit and trying, you know, not just to inspire their team members, but to get them to make discernible changes, um, what advice would you give them? How can they bring about change in a practical manner? Yeah, I I think... um... One of the things I just admire most about the DevOps enterprise community is that uh, they're the people who are figuring out how to elevate the state of the practice in their technology organizations, in large complex organizations, often surrounded by very powerful, entrenched uh, conservative organizations that uh, really don't want to uh, you know, change the way they're working. And uh, you know, I think uh, over the last six years of the DevOps enterprise, I mean, I think just uh, you know, the... Uh, the level of the resistance is, is, uh, has been conveyed so well. And I think what I admire so much about these technology leaders who are presenting are the, are the, uh, are the ones who are succeeding. Uh, they're getting promoted. Um, and I think the stories they tell, for me, just are just uh, so admirable. Uh, you know, just the level of courageousness it takes uh, and fortitude <laughs> to keep fighting a good fight. Um, and yet, uh, you know, I think, the, it's, it's, to me, it's beyond question that uh, these people are being appreciated by the organizations, they're being given more responsibility. Um, and, and so uh, you know, I think the advice I would give is that, uh, you know, I think we've done so much work around the state of DevOps report and the, uh, that study to show that, you know, DevOps principles and patterns are great for IT performance, organizational performance. And I think the experience reports highlighted in the DevOps Enterprise Summit, they're really intended to um, showcase, I think, the success stories so that we can learn you know, what behaviors to model, you know, what mindsets to adopt, um, so that hopefully we can replicate those amazing outcomes. 
Right. Uh, is there anything um, new among these common traits and success stories that you've seen lately that, that's been a little surprising to you? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, we started this the last couple of years, and as a, uh, as a portion of the programming, uh, we keep increasing the amount that, uh, that we're giving to technology leaders presenting with their business counterparts. Um, and, and so, you know, we're not looking for the business counterpart who is there just to be, you know, uh, in close proximity to the person. We're looking for the person who is going to say, you know, thank goodness for, you know, my technology counterpart, because without that person, none of my goals, dreams, and aspirations uh, could have come true. And so we're, we're looking for that uh, business counterpart who is going to brag about all the uh, their exploits and achievements, um, you know, that were done in conjunction with the technology leader. And, uh, you know, over the years, I think that the level of seniority that business person uh, keeps rising, just as the uh, levels of seniority among the technology uh, leader speakers uh, keep rising. I think, you know, to me, that's just an indication of, uh, you know, just how important and uh, how relevant, you know, these technology leaders um, uh, are are within their organizations. Um, and so, you know, I think that's just a great trend to see. And I think just another indication that, you know, uh, right is on the side of these people who are pushing DevOps initiatives within these organizations. I, I know you've got probably a lot of friends among the different software companies out there, Gene, but I, I did want to ask you about uh, tools that uh, pertain to the DevOps space. Uh, we've seen a lot of consolidation in the last year. You know, mm -hmm. CloudBees, the CloudBees and SmartBear come to mind immediately as some of the more aggressive companies out there. How do you think this type of consolidation will ultimately impact users? Uh, what are some of the potential positives and negatives you see coming out of that? Yeah, I, I think uh, positives is, uh, I think my personal interpretation is uh, that it just shows that there's a lot of, uh, that the space is vibrant and there's a, a ton of great innovation going on and that, uh, you know, these you know, acquisitions are happening uh, at, you know, with a premium multiple being associated with it. And, you know, I can think of uh, other uh, eras where, you know, the nature of acquisitions where they were all fire sales and uh, that doesn't feel good to anyone. <laughs> so sure. you know, I, I'm just uh, delighted, you know, to see, you know, this level of interest uh, in that the software segment. I think the other thing that is really interesting to me is the fact that it is happening in, you know, across all the, the, uh, the user communities, whether it's developers, you know, designers, uh, QA, operations, security. So, you know, I think uh, what it shows me, um, you know, is that, you know, DevOps really touches everyone involved in the technology value stream um, and that we're all benefiting from it. So it's not like uh, QA is disappearing or ops and infrastructure is disappearing. Instead, it really is, you know, these principles and patterns being applied to everyone that does technology work. And to me, that's very, very exciting. Sure, sure. Uh, but if you're a smaller vendor in that space, you know, do you look at these sorts of acquisitions as, as putting your customer base at risk? You know, are, are those smaller vendors more at risk of, you know, uh, being uh, swept up uh, by the competition of the emerging giants there? Or maybe crowded <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, possibly. Yeah, I, I guess, um, yeah, I, I kind of view it in two streams, right? One is uh, yeah, it's a very competitive space and uh, holy cow, right? To, to, uh, survive and thrive, you know, in the space that actually takes uh, a lot of skill these days. It's not like 20 years ago where, you know, uh, you know maybe uh, there wasn't much competition. Yeah, I think, uh, but, but I would take that any day over the opposite where, you know, you're building, we're building products uh, that no one cares about and, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever acquisitions are happening are, you know, be done at uh, bargain basement prices. So, 
you know, I think we all want to be where, you know, the innovation uh, is happening and where the party's at. You know, Gina, I'm sure mileage will vary depending on the organization and compliance needs, that sort of thing. But uh, what sorts of security processes do you see as mandatory for more mature DevOps shops? So do, you, do you recommend something like DevSecOps or Rugged DevOps or another uh, organized sort of approach like that? Oh, oh, absolutely. In fact, to your question, like what DevOps uh, security practices are required? Uh, all of them. And I don't care what you call it, right? Uh, I have friends in all of those uh, communities, however we segment ourselves. But you know, essentially what they're all saying is that we need to integrate the information security objectives into everyone else's daily work. And that you know, applies whether we're a product leader, engineering, you know, development, QA, operations, infrastructure. Right. Increasingly, it's not you know security working in its own silo. You know, working within you know through the GRC tools. Really, it's how, how do you get that expertise embedded into you know every other domain of engineering. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, I think the surface area keeps increasing. Uh, you know, the amount of data keeps increasing. So, you know, the work that needs to be done, that's security relevant, keeps going up. And so, thank goodness, you know, uh, you know, we can all help carry that the responsibilities and share those, the security responsibilities. So. Yeah, I actually think it's just a great time to be in security these days. Sure. Uh, switching gears to the Unicorn Project, and uh, congratulations on the book. Uh, I know it's coming out oh. soon. Um, uh, but I did want to ask you, you know, you, you try to present some common IT struggles in a narrative form, uh, just as you did with the, the Phoenix Project. Uh, so I want to briefly read from the book description here to, to set the scene uh, for our listeners. Uh, Maxine, who is a senior lead developer and architect, tries to survive in what feels like a heartless and uncaring bureaucracy and to work within a system where no one can get anything done without endless committees, paperwork, and approvals. Uh, sounds a little bit like a dystopia, but I'm sure that there's, uh, I'm sure there's some real-world inspiration to this character in this situation. So uh, can you tell me what are some of the top frustrations you hear from uh, developers, particularly the, the ones that are in this sort of bureaucratic system that you describe? Yeah, in fact, you know, I think this dystopia is really what uh, the DevOps Enterprise community is trying to overthrow, right? In other words, it is the rebellion uh, trying to overthrow this kind of uh, powerful, uncaring order. Um, and so the Unicorn Project is really the Phoenix Project retold from a developer perspective. And if I were to zoom way back, right, like why, why are these problems important? It's because, you know, um, there are all these invisible structures that are required to make developers productive. Um, and, you know, and developers have to be productive in order for, you know, the organization to achieve its goals. And so it's impeded by technical debt. Uh, it's impeded by, uh, you know, a culture of fear. It's, in, it's, uh, uh, it's impeded by architectures where it's very difficult for individual teams to get anything done by themselves. Instead, they have to work with, you know, 20, 30, 40 <laughs> different other teams. Um, you know, to actually get into production or even working on the feature, they have, might have to work on, you know, five or 10 different teams, mm -hmm. you know, that all have to communicate, coordinate, synchronize, marshal, prioritize together. And so, uh, uh, and I think one of the things that I just find dazzling these days is that, you know, just like in the DevOps movement, you know, our, the problem that we were trying to solve was how to get, you know, the features and code into where it needs to go, which is in production where it's, you know, where customers can actually start getting value from it. There's other kind of parallel universe, this orthogonal universe where we have the same problem with data, where we have data trapped inside of these data warehouses. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in order to, you know, get data to the teams that actually need it, uh, that might take six, nine months. Um, 
you know, to actually, you know, do a simple SQL change, right? And uh, even that's very error prone where suddenly you have, you know, people's addresses going up in the zip code field. So, you know, it just, um, all these things I think conspire to make it very, very difficult uh, for developers to actually get what needs to get done, done. Right. You know, sort of in that same sympathetic mindset, in, in the book, you seem to focus a bit more on the mindset and well-being of IT professionals, uh, you know, at least from what we've seen in the book description so far. So, you know, how would you recommend managers and executives promote a culture that is both healthy for uh, IT workers and developers uh, and encourages creativity without taking a hit to productivity? Oh, yeah, for sure. That's a great question. So, yeah, in the Phoenix Project, uh, you know, we use the constructs of the three ways um, mm-hmm. and the four types of work. And so in the Unicorn Project, we're using uh, the notion of the five ideals. So the first ideal is locality and simplicity. So that's really uh, architectural concerns. Uh, so how do you really organize teams and code so that uh, we can get things done by touching only one thing instead of having to touch everything? Mm-hmm. Uh, the second ideal is um, uh, really a, a side effect of that is you know, when we have locality and simplicity, we can work with focus, flow, and even joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third um, ideal is improvement of daily work. So this is really uh, has to come from leadership, is that we prioritize improvement of daily work, even over daily work itself. Uh, the fourth ideal is uh, psychological safety. So how do we make uh, create the conditions so that uh, you know, members on teams and members within an organization feel like they can uh, say what they really think uh, without fear of uh, being uh, castigated um, uh, or blamed uh, that they can make mistakes, they can take risks. And then the fifth ideal is the customer focus, really. Uh, I think the, the construct there is uh, having an unflinching view of which things are core versus context. So core are things that really create competitive advantage that customers want, that customers are willing to pay for, whereas context is everything else. So it might be mission critical, but uh, you know customers actually don't value. In other words, having a world-class payroll system uh, is something that you know customers are not willing to pay a premium for. So that makes it context. So it's important, uh, but not necessarily. But uh, you know, the sum of all that context conspires to starve us of our ability to fund core. So those are the things that uh, uh, I think are as relevant to you know engineers and engineering leaders as they are for the top levels of management. Uh, hi, Gene. It's Ryan. Um, I was wondering, do you do you see any sort of connection between the phenomenon that is uh, developer burnout and kind of also the increased expectations in the industry for developers in DevOps to perform tasks related to security, <laughs> QA, et cetera? Essentially, like duties that maybe someone would think is you know traditionally outside their wheelhouse, because of course they also have all their coding and programming responsibilities. Uh, yeah, this is such a uh, such a great concept. I think that the whole notion of the 10x engineer or the full stack engineer, I mean, I, th- I think is absolutely at the core of it. Right? Because in my mind, in my experience, like, that is the opposite of what I want to do. In fact, um, you know, for the last 20 years, uh, I've self-identified primarily as an ops person. You know, despite getting my master's in uh, compiler design and high-speed networking, I've really identified as ops just because i think that was where the most fun was happening that's where the saves were made um and i think it was also because you know for the vast majority of uh you know the last couple decades right uh, you know someone needs to protect customers from developers but these days i uh three years ago i started uh self-identifying as a developer and i think it's um 
uh, because of learning closure, this functional programming language. And it, it's never been, I've never had so much fun programming, but the side effect is that I no longer want to work on anything outside of my application. Uh, I just want to work within my pure little bubble. I don't want to connect it to anything. I don't want to have to deal with secrets or security. I don't want to deal with platform. Uh, I don't want to deal with infrastructure or YAML configuration files. And for me, right, in my experience, what that suggests is that really we don't want this 10x engineer who's forced to work with everything up and down the entire application stack and databases and environments and you know make files and configurations and SSL certificates. Really, you know. To get developers productive, we need them just to focus, have their best energies spent on solving the business problem. And everything else we should do through platforms. So as a security or an op infrastructure person, we want our expertise in the platform, whether it's in a uh, you know, Kubernetes or in a uh, platform as a service, or uh, whether as a security person, we want it in libraries or uh, things that we can pull from, uh, because that enables developers to work with focus and you know, achieve a state of flow where they're actually having fun with conditions of fast feedback. And uh, uh, Dr. Chiksek Mihai, uh, he wrote this amazing book called Flow um, on what it takes to have you know, um, joy in our work. I mean, he, would, he said that these are the conditions where we can actually have joy in our work. And so you know, I think that is, uh, all this is a very long way of saying, you know, we don't want developers to be 10X engineers, right? We want them to be focused on solving the business problem and the goal of infrastructure and security is really to enable those developers to work securely, safely, um, and quickly with fast feedback. Uh, so that, does that resonate with you, Ryan? No, no, that does make sense. Uh, I, I guess uh, the one question I would have as a follow-up, though, is uh, you, you talked a bit about like how that better balance could be found, but I'd be wondering kind of like who, in your opinion, is the impetus on like in an organization to kind of find and strike that better balance? Is it on the developers themselves to kind of advocate, you know, to get to a place where they had have that flow? Or is it kind of on the organization themselves or their parent organization, oh. I should say? Oh, man, that's a great question. Yeah, man, I think it's, it's everybody, right? From the, from the person doing the work, the person whose daily work is to do development, right? I think it's, uh, you know, having the, the fussiness and the, um, uh, to be fussy enough to say, hey, look, I don't want to be uh, having to stand up my own CI server, right? I don't want to have to Google and uh, Stack Overflow security settings. I don't want to have to learn how to do secrets management all by myself, right? Uh, really, that should be done by, you know, someone who spent decades doing that. And uh, that person should be not doing work through the ticketing system. We want that person's expertise to be embedded in platforms. Similarly, anyone in those, you know, infrastructure and security domains, right? We want... Um, our work, yeah, we should feel that our job is to take the best knowledge we have and make it accessible to everyone in the organization, whether you're present or not, right? Uh, because it should be, you know, in the code and the platforms. And then, you know, certainly then, you know, this has implications for how we're organized, uh, how teams are organized, you know, how uh, the, the platforms and architectures we create. And so that typically comes from the more, you know, the, the leaders in the company, right? And so, yeah, I think it takes uh, you know all of those constituencies. Certainly, having just leadership on board and no one else wanting to do that—that that doesn't work. And nor does having all the people, you know, uh, doing the work but not having leadership on board, right? I think it's really we. Uh, in fact, I think that's really the one of the goals of the Unicorn Project is really show in high fidelity what do the problems look like and feel like, 
and you know uh, go through the DevOps enterprise journey um, of picking some of the best patterns that we've seen in that community and just showing how it unfolds and transforms how everybody works within uh, a technology organization. And in fact, not just technology, but you know throughout the entire business. Uh, you brought up the book, and I did actually have another question about it. And uh, I saw I saw a recent uh, write up uh, from a of a DevOps Days talk you did, and uh, it said that you were in the talk you talked about. There's like a spectrum of decisions that quote enable greatness or create underperformance. Uh, uh-huh. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. I think this is the uh, Westrom organizational topology model. Um, about culture of you know cultures of fear, cultures of yeah. uh, bureaucracy, and cultures of um, uh, what they call generative cultures. Uh, is that what you're referring to? I believe so. Yeah, I was wondering if you could explain maybe a bit more like what exactly that spectrum is and what exactly it en- enables slash creates. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, uh, it's called the Westrom uh, model uh, in the state of DevOps report. Uh, this showed up uh, in 2015, and it's one of uh, one of my favorites. So Dr. Ron Westrom, uh, what he discovered almost 20 years ago uh, was when he was studying healthcare organizations, was that the organizations with the best uh, patient outcomes and uh, the, the fewest number of you know, accidents, um, it was uh, highly correlated with uh, the culture of the organization. They had this beautiful model of, kind of three kind of archetypal categories. So uh, the first one he called pathological organizations. And so these were the ones with the worst healthcare outcomes. The uh, information was hidden. Messengers of bad news uh, were shot. Um, bridging between teams was discouraged. So in his world, it was uh, uh, maybe patient intake, nursing, uh, uh, surgery, pharmacy, outpatient care, right? Um, and then new ideas were crushed. Uh, in the middle, uh, they had uh, what we called bureaucratic cultures. So this was kind of a considered merciful cultures or just cultures. And then at the highest level uh, is what he called generative cultures. So these were the ones with the best patient outcomes. And these are organizations where uh, information is actively sought. Uh, messengers are trained to tell bad news. So in our world, this would be like uh, training every engineer to lead blameless postmortems so we can create an accurate chronology of what happened so we can better prevent these problems from happening in the future. Um, we encourage responsibilities to be shared. Um, so just as we were talking about before, right, InfoSec is just not InfoSec's job. Just like operations and availability is not just officer's job, it's everybody's job. Um, and uh, when failures happen, it causes a genuine sense of inquiry. And, and so what we found in the state of DevOps report was that this was uh, this notion of culture as measured by the Western model was one of the top uh, predictors of performance. And so I just find it interesting, right, that this also embodies the notion of psychological safety. Um, it, uh, I think it gives us a language to uh, talk about. Oh, I'm sorry, one more thing. I think it would be a mistake to say that this is just the job of leaders, you know, to set the cultural tone. You know, psychological safety is also a function of our peers, uh, you know, our people's histories and backgrounds, uh, our moods, right? And so psychological safety is so fragile. Um, and there's this wonderful studies that have been done uh, by Google and their project Austin that just show how important psychological safety is. It was actually one of the top determinants of uh, team effectiveness um, uh, and effectiveness of the managers. Uh, psychological safety, that was one of the ideals you mentioned earlier, right? 
Yes, it was uh, the ideal number four of psychological safety. Yeah, I, I did want to ask you about those ideals as well, because I know uh, you you say that like the ideals are you know pretty central to the Unicorn Project, and uh, in previous books, I think you've also th- said that you focused on principles and practices. So I was yeah. wondering, how, <laughs> yeah. how exactly would you kind of differentiate those two? Yeah, I don't know. In fact, um, uh, yeah, so the three ways are a set of principles from which you can derive all of the patterns, you know, uh, that we see, you know, put in practice. Yeah, I think the five ideals uh, are just, and I don't know if they're orthogonal. I don't know, um, it, you know, I, I can't say exactly kind of with uh, precision, <laughs> like, uh, you know, the, the relationships to each other. But, you know, for me, uh, it really, in fact, just to tell a story, in, in January, uh, I had just gotten done with the first draft, and uh, I read through it uh, after almost uh, a year and a half of full-time work on it, and my feeling was, oh my gosh, is, is this just a pile of words that say nothing? <laughs> and then began, uh, you know, uh, uh, a couple of weeks of uh, soul-searching, and, you know, I think what came out of it uh, was these Three, these five things that I just think are so important that really kind of frame, you know, what goes wrong in organizations, um, and it actually shows us the direction of what we want. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, sorry I can't give you a more precise answer than that, but uh, I think they are really sort of five things <laughs> that uh, kind of represent kind of these peak experiences that we have and the conditions we need around us in order to make that happen. And also, you know, which I assert, which are also things that we need for our organizations that you win in the marketplace. Uh, there was, uh, I did also want to ask you about uh, kind of like this existential question of uh, feature velocity versus quality. That, that seems yeah. to be the dichotomy that everyone always tends to think about, like one versus the other. Uh, from your conversations with people in the industry, how do you see DevOps, high adopters, like how do they strike this balance between technical debt and feature velocity? It, oh, um, that's such great observations. Uh, yeah, so I mean, here's the way I frame it in my head, is that uh, when I talk about the Unicorn Project, I, I, and you know, what is the one thing that it talks about? And I think it's really these invisible structures that enable developers to get their work done. And when I say developers, I mean really everybody. And so the, my mental model is, is like these three things at the very, t- like a triangle, right? At the very top, you have features and everyone can see them <laughs> and everyone values it because, you know, we can see the app or we can see the, uh, you know, the, our feature or the app on our phone. And so anyone can get funding for that, right? Uh, but underneath it, right, is this middle level of all these the, of the architectures that allow us to build the features or the systems that can get us, you know, get the data we need. So these are backend APIs uh, and, and so forth. But even underneath that, uh, right, are all the systems and tools that developers use as part of the daily work. And those are almost invisible uh, and almost no one values those. Uh, so these are even valued less than sort of like the, uh, the architectures. And so what I find amazing is that if you look at Google, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, uh, they put their best engineers on that bottom level on dev productivity. So uh, you know they spend somewhere between three to five percent, three to five percent of all their developers are spent on dev productivity. And it's not just the junior, it's not the junior engineers; it's their absolute best engineers. Um, and and so you know in Google's case, that's like um, 
I think that's 1,500 developers working on developer productivity. Microsoft has like three to 5,000 developers working on dev productivity. So contrast that to most organizations where they give those tasks to the summer interns or people who aren't good enough to work on features. And I, I think this shows, you know, uh, why, you know, uh, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft are so much more productive that they can generate so many more features, <laughs> right? Is because they put their best people on making developers more productive. Whereas uh, in, a, yeah. qu a quick question about that though, is that reflective of the fact that like those organizations like Amazon, Microsoft have the most resources and can afford to do that? Or is the fact that they're successful because they do that? I would assert it's a second that uh, in any successful organization, you're going to see this, regardless of how many engineers they have, uh, is how much are they investing in making developers productive? And to do that, uh, you know, these are the uh, the non-functional requirements. These are things that are not features. Um, so Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, he said, you know, if any engineer has to choose between working on a feature or working on dev productivity, always choose dev productivity. Right, because I think you know, what he's saying is that uh, it's like the opposite of technical debt. Now you're playing you know, the, uh, the game where you have compounded interest working in your favor. And, you can, and he's playing the, uh, the forever game, right? Is that you know, the more you work on uh, you know, becoming more productive, the more you can get done. And, and so there's a great um, presentation at DevOps Enterprise London uh, from, it was a genealogy company. And so this is uh, you know, 500 people. And it's just an amazing story, uh, not in the large, like at Google, but in the small. Uh, and it's just amazing to see how the same things that you see in play at Google and Microsoft are happening, you know, in smaller software companies. So I just think, uh, you know, the evidence is very decisive that, you know, these things are as relevant um, regardless of whether, you know, you have you know, 60,000 engineers like Microsoft or, you know, 50 or even five engineers. In the more than six years that have passed between the debut of the Phoenix Project and now the launch of the Unicorn Project, what are the more significant ways in which you've seen the DevOps movement evolve, and what do you think is next for the DevOps movement? Yeah, um, I think for one thing, I you know I think from the Phoenix Project came out in 2013, you know, I think then people associated DevOps with the unicorns, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google's, Microsoft. Um, and I think it was very easy for people to say, you know, DevOps is for them, not me. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think certainly something that's changed in the six years is that increasingly DevOps is an important um, agenda item for every software company. The, the Mark Andreessen quote of that, you know, software is eating the world. The uh, Jeffrey Immelt quote from GE saying every company is a software company. I think that's uh, increasingly um, accepted by almost everyone inside of uh, most modern organizations. And by modern organizations, I mean ex organizations that are still around. <laughs> they might be sure. hundreds of years old. Um, uh, and, and so now the question really becomes, you know, how do we incorporate those principles and practices into our organizations? And I just love that uh, the DevOps enterprise community, I think, has been such a great part in helping build that body of evidence to show, you know, not only can it be done, but here's how it's being done. And you know, I think there's over 300 plus now case studies that have been uh, recorded that's, that's available for everyone to download and watch of uh, organizations across every industry vertical, uh, government agencies, not-for-profits, um, showing you know, what they're doing and why they're doing it and what the outcomes were. Um, and I think that 
The second thing that's changed is really the elevation of data. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's this great book by uh, Risto Salasma. He's the chairman of Nokia. He wrote this amazing book called Transforming Nokia. He's the chairman of the board. Um, and so he was there during the uh, declining years of uh, their exit of the phone business and their five-fold increase in market cap as they have uh, um, starting to take market share away from the top vendors in the um, uh, carrier market uh, and the course switching companies. Anyway, so uh, and you know, he, in his talk, he says, um, everyone at Nokia needs to understand five things. Um, one is they have to have an intuition of what machine learning is and what problems can and can't be solved. Two is, uh, you know, they have to be able to see the business problems um, in front of them. And uh, if they see opportunities where machine learning can help with achievement and solving those problems, uh, they should have the resources available to do that. Uh, three, uh, you know, he's talking about how, um, how critical data is to the company. Uh, and he even makes this point that says, uh, you know, our customers, which are large telco carriers, right? They don't want to give us their data. And it is now our job to show us how it's actually good for them. And it's so valuable to the company that you know, maybe they need to even pay their customers for that data um, because it is that important for uh, the future of the company. And then, you know, he makes this kind of incredible claim that says, you know, we have to identify as a company, um, you know, what the most strategic sources of data are uh, so that they can make decisive steps to, you know, uh, build that data, uh, or even acquire that data. Um, and I think this is just a, for me, it was just a breathtaking view of how visionary business leaders view the importance of data. And that's certainly something I've tried to put into the Unicorn Project is really kind of showing uh, how data enables innovation. Um, and it certainly, uh, um, introduce a whole bunch of challenges in terms of like, how do we get to that data? You know, how do we sort of keep teams responsible and accountable for cleaning it and making it available for other teams? So yeah, I, I think that was very, um, it was much more at the forefront than it was say six years ago. Well, Gene, this has been really insightful. Thank you so much. Oh man, uh, David and Ryan, thank you so much. Be sure to check out searchlockforquality.com for more articles on application development, testing, and management topics. And follow us on Twitter at softwaretestt.